This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 132. And the quote of the day is from Tom Hiddleston, who said, We all have two lives. The second one starts when we realize we only have one. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And if this is your first time checking it out, I appreciate it. And welcome to the Drummer's Resource community. There's over 130 interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders that you can check all of them out on iTunes, on Stitcher, and of course at drummersresource.com. So be sure to do that. If you are an avid listener and you dig the podcast, do me a favor and just leave a rating or a review on iTunes, an honest rating or review. And I would love to see some feedback. And also that helps the podcast get higher up in the ratings and uh, it gets more people to see and hear about the podcast. So that would be great. Head over to iTunes, leave an honest rating and review. And I got a question for you. Are you tired of banging your head against the wall, trying to grow your social media presence, trying to grow your Facebook, your Instagram, YouTube, and all of that stuff? We came out with the Drummer's Social Media Boot Camp, and it'll help you implement and master the tools that are used by top drummers. This boot camp will help you get more gigs, fans, students, and opportunities by learning easy to implement strategies and techniques that you can use immediately. So if you want to learn more about that, go to drummersresource.com forward slash training. I promise you, you'll be glad you did. It's about 10 hours, or it's actually over 10 hours of intensive training on how to grow all of that stuff. Again, drummersresource.com forward slash training. Now, the interview that I have today is one that is very, very special to me. This is Roy Burns, the founder of Aquarian Drumheads. He's also a very accomplished player, author. He invented the drum clinic, um, or he was at least one of the pioneers in the drum clinic. And he's played on like every TV show and, you know, now runs this, this amazing drum company. And I met Roy years. I met him 10 years ago, uh, at, at, at the PESA convention. And he was so, I was like, you know, I'm a young kid, uh, a, an unknown kid. And he went around and showed me every single drum head and explained them all to me. He spent a long time with me and I've literally pay, played Aquarian drum heads ever since. And two and a half, three years ago, I joined the Aquarian roster as one of their artists, which was a great day for me, but I've never got to talk to Roy the way that I did in this interview. So I get, we get his whole entire backstory and his words of wisdom and just, just all of his nuggets of information that he's amassed over this storied career that he's had. So this is a really, really, really special interview for me and I'm, I'm happy to share it with all of you so let's get into it right now with mr roy burns great to have you roy thank you so much for doing this again i mentioned you know off air that i started playing aquarian in in 2005 and have been playing religiously ever since and thankfully now i'm, I'm part of the aquarian family so i would just like to publicly you know thank you for for the great job that you guys do over there at aquarian and and i applaud you on on all the great success you've had well we've been in business 35 years which is no and, small uh, that's, that's that's quite an undertaking you know mm-hmm to keep everything going and keep it together, but uh, we've managed to do it. 
and and do it well you have so so congratulations on that and i would i always like to get the backstory of of my guests and you have such a a long and and successful career. I mean, you've, you've done everything in this business. Not only do you own aquarium, but you've, you know, you were an inventor or at least the pioneer in, in drum clinics. You've played with Benny Goodman. You've, you've done studio work. You've performed on national television, written for modern drummer. You've been an in-demand teacher. Uh, you've written a handful of books. I mean, you have, you have literally done everything that you could possibly do in the drumming community. So where did it all start? How did this whole thing come about? Well, I was playing on the sidewalk in front of my house in Emporia, Kansas. And the, uh, during World War II, they had some marching exercises at the college two blocks away. And the guys that are in the ROTC today were doing the, some marching maneuvers. And I would run away from home and run along beside the drummers. So one day they took a break and this young guy came over and he says, you play the drums? I said, sure. <laughs> I was like five years old. And he said, let me see you play. So I played a little bit on his parade drum. He held it for me. And he went to see my mother and said, if you don't give this kid lessons, it's going to be a crime. Now, whoever that unknown soldier boy was, I don't know, but he did me a great favor because my mother really became my champion and made sure that I got lessons and opportunities to practice. In fact, my parents built a small room on the corner of our house so I have a place to set up the drums and practice all day. Really? Which was really, was really pretty nice, yeah. Wow. So you started playing, you started taking lessons at five? No, I started taking lessons probably a year or two later. Okay, okay. And uh, with a local college uh, teacher, he was a violinist, but he taught me a few things that I never forgot. And he used to say, Roy, you have good hands, but you must learn to use your noodle. Like, think before you hit something, you know? Right. <laughs> and I never forgot to use your noodle, you know? But uh, he he was really great. Because he concentrated on the music. When you came out of the lesson after, it wasn't just rudiments or just drumming. You got a picture of music. And I was always very fortunate, uh, I thought, to have that. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot now, you know, a lot of times now people, the the music sort of escapes them and there's a lot of, of just playing the drums and not playing, playing music. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but no more than ever. It, it, the percentage is about the same. There's just there are more drummers now and they're more good ones. Right. More good young players than ever before. When I was coming up, there were a lot of drummers, but most of them didn't know how to play the instrument very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they couldn't read. And so I got into uh, playing with people much older than me at a very young age because I could play the older guy's music. I could read and I had good technique. Right. So I was able to play the music, you know. Hmm. And a lot of the guys were either couldn't read or didn't have good technique or couldn't make the tempos. Not without talent, but they just hadn't had any kind of training. Right. Because it was so hard to get information in those days. You just couldn't find anything that was worth a darn, you know. And when you finally found an article or something or a photograph or somebody giving you good advice, it was rare. And it was really hard to find. Now we've got so much information available, it's tough to dig through it and find out what the good stuff is. Yeah, you know, I I think of that a lot, that at... At some point, it's really good, and then you know it can be over. You know, it's almost like overstimulating to a point. And you don't know what's good and what's bad because if if you don't know how to 
do something and you go on YouTube to watch it, you could be watching somebody doing it wrong and then you learn how to do it wrong. Well, like I've always told people, <clears throat> I ask uh, on clinics, I used to ask uh, anybody here taking drum lessons. <clears throat> and invariably, there'd be a couple of guys who didn't take lessons. I said, why not? And they said, well, I want to have an original style. I said, are you in a band? He says, no. And I said, how are you going to get a style? You have to play with other people and learn the basics before you can worry about having a special style. Mm-hmm. But I said, uh, why is it that you don't want to take lessons? He said, I want to be a self-taught player. I said, everybody is self-taught. No teacher can teach you how to play, but he can teach you how to avoid a lot of mistakes, right. like using the wrong books or listening to the wrong guys or how to hold the sticks. The teacher can give you the mechanics and the basic knowledge to, so you can learn to teach yourself how to play music because eventually you have to sit down at the drums and play music with other musicians, mm-hmm. and that's where the real learning begins. So we're all self-taught, you know? Right. I never, you know, I never thought of it like that because I do know that so many people are afraid of, of getting boxed in or, you know, I've, I've heard people say, I don't want to learn my rudiments because I, you know, I want to have feel when I play. And I think you don't, you don't think that Elvin Jones had feel or you don't think that Steve Gadd has feel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which well, is, again, music is Buddy Richwood said, he asked his piano player for an arrangement of Jasmine Blues, an old Dixieland tune. He said, why should we play that tune? He says, look, music is just interpretation. Didn't they teach anything in college? (laughs) In his usual caustic manner. But uh, his point was well taken. It's it's, you interpret the music. Sure. That's what makes the style and makes the individual, makes you different. But if you're not playing with other people, you can't sit at home and develop an individual style and then go out and inflict it on some unsuspecting band. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> you have to have some cooperation, some exchange, you know? Mm-hmm. My, my theory is always been put the music first. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to play to help the music, what would you play? And do that, and then you'll sound good. Or you have a better chance of sounding good. Rather than working out some tricky fill-in and then trying to insert it in some place where it doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. You know? So here's the rub, because I think there is a, I think there's, some challenges for people to get to that point, because I know that, you know, even myself as a younger player thought, man, I I think what I'm playing is really good and and musical. And then years later, you realize that it's not. So it's sometimes it's a little, it's, it's tough because you don't know what you don't know. So how do you suggest that, that people are playing and serving the song and how to really, how to really get to that headspace? I met Sonny Igo when I was like 15 years old. He came through Emporia, Kansas with uh, Woody Herman's band. And I went back and talked to him on his break. He was kind enough to talk to me his entire intermission. And then I hooked up with him again in New York, and I wanted to take some lessons. So I went up to take a lesson. He said, you're not going to pay me for today. I said, what's the matter? He says, uh, you don't need any more lessons. You just need to go out and play more. Get 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 in there and play. Mm-hmm. And I thought he doesn't want to teach me the secret. <laughs> I was so disappointed. But when I look back, he was the most honest with me because he could have taken the money for the lessons. But he just said, "You you know enough technique. You know mm-hmm. you don't have to be a technical wizard. You just as uh, Ray Bryant, the famous piano player, said to me one time, you just have to have enough technique to play what you want to play. Right. You don't have to be a technical genius." to play with a band, you know. Mel Lewis was one of my favorite drummers, and he didn't have great technique. Right. 
he had a very personalized technique, and he got a great sound, and I love his playing, but uh, no one would ever call him a technician, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's, it's, he had to figure out a way to get the music out. Yeah. If you, if you keep concentrating on the music and trying to find ways to make the music sound good, you'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's, you know, because I think a lot of people, one, you know, the, the technique thing gets a little sensationalized and, and, you know, the chops and all of that stuff. And then when people, when people start playing, they feel like that's what they have to play rather than, rather than just saying, okay, let me, let me sit back and let me let this, let me let everything breathe a little bit here and, and sort of let the music dictate what I play rather than, you know, dictating what the music sounds like, just sort of let it naturally happen. I'll tell you where the trap is. When there, you think there's two or three drummers in the room, you start <laughs> yeah. playing to those drummers instead of playing to the guys in the band and serving the music. And you, like I remind guys, those other drummers aren't going to get you a job. Right. In fact, they'll probably say bad things about you. You know, people can be kind of small mm-hmm. sometimes, you know. And the other thing that happens is you're playing this gig and you're doing fine and you look up and there's three or four named drummers in the audience. Well, the immature guy is going to say, well, I'm going to play something to impress him. And he tries to play something he doesn't have any control over and messes the music up incredibly. Then he loses his confidence and he feels terrible. Mm-hmm. The smart guy just plays the music, plays what he knows he can play, and nails it to the floor. That will impress those guys. Sure. Now, sure. The, the guys that are big name players that don't go to clubs to hear a guy foul up or mess up, they generally go there because there's somebody spending something interesting happening musically. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just dinner, you know? Right. But uh, I was at a clinic in New Jersey, and we went to this uh, place to have a, a little bite to eat after the uh, clinic, and they had a dance floor, and the only table we could get was near the edge of the dance floor. So the, the nice little trio playing, and suddenly during this tune, I hear the drummer with his back tank going, da 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 I said, I've been spotted. <laughs> I liked him better before he did that. Dude. Right, right. I think, you know, I know I've definitely been in that situation where, you know, somebody walks in the room and I'm kind of like, oh, man, here we go. Now, you know, I, when I, now I'm just, you know, I play the way that I play and that's that's about all. So I'm not I can't I'm not going to try to impress anybody. Well, I will, but I'll just try to impress them by just playing well. Well, the but, best way to impress them is to play a little less and nail it. Right, right. Because you get count, you get points for what you nail, and you get demerits for what you don't nail. You know. Right, right. So if right. you just uh, when in doubt, simplify. You know. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty good rule. Yeah, I agree. So now you, I know that um, at one point you moved to New York, and what? So what year did you move there? around 1955 1955 so how long did i mean you weren't there very long before you started playing who did you started first with benny goodwin no i uh, got a job with uh, woody herman's band sonny Igo had recommended me and i auditioned and i got the job oh okay and after about six months i was at home in new york city and i get a call from benny goodman's manager he said benny would like you to come up to the Carnegie hall rehearsal studios and play with him today I said, but I'm with Woody. I can't do that. He said, look, Benny will take care of that. He just wants to hear you play. He's heard about you. He'd like you to come up and play. So I said, okay. So I get up to the rehearsal studio, and it's Mel Powell, about six feet five, a genius piano player and arranger, but I didn't know who he was. 
mm-hmm. and Benny, no bass player. I'm thinking, what's going on? So we start to play, and Benny says, let's play Lady Be Good. So we play this tune. I'm playing brushes. We play one tune after another for two hours. Nobody says anything. And Benny puts his horn down at the end of one tune and says, okay, be at the Waldorf tonight, wear a dark suit. So uh, I, I had to ask uh, Mel Powell, the piano player, where is the, the Waldorf? I didn't even know. Right. I, I had one dark suit. For, I had one suit, period. So I get up to the Waldorf, and it's like a sunken ballroom where the dance floor is down, and the, and the, the table is in tears. So I sat up in the corner, and listening to the band. I don't know what's going to happen. And the manager comes up and says, uh, you know, they play a, a dance set, a concert set, and a dance set. So the manager comes up and says, Benny wants you to play the next concert set. Well, they have a drummer. So I go down there to meet the drummer. It's Mousy Alexander. Mm-hmm. He was very nice to me. He said he'd given his notice. He was leaving the band. So not to worry about him. And he said, this is a hell of a way to audition in front of a live audience <laughs> yeah. reading on somebody else's drums with no rehearsal. He said, I'll talk you through the charts. I'll help you as much as I can. I hope you can do it. So I did pretty well. And Mel Powell leaned to the piano and said, congratulations, young man. And Mousley said, wow, you played that show exactly like I do. You really listen. He said, I hope you get the gig. Just play as steady as you can because time to Benny Goodman is music. Or music is time. They're interchangeable. But just, just play as steady as you can. And I got the gig. Hmm. That is a, well, I had, I, I had a hectic to way to audition. To. Well, when I look back, it's kind of scary. But at the time, I was so young, I wasn't. Uh, maybe I wasn't smart enough to be scared. Right. <laughs> I had nothing. To, I had nothing to lose, you know. Right. But the Benny uh, and uh, Daniel Glass was telling me at the NAMM show last January. He said every drummer that he talked with who worked with Benny Goodman didn't like the experience. I said I had a great experience. He even had me on a retainer, so I got paid when we didn't work. And he said, how, how did you do that? I said, well, it just kind of came about, you know. He wanted me, and I was busy one time, and he wanted the first call on my services. And so uh, I got along with Benny very well. He let me play uh, my own version of Sing, Sing, Sing. I didn't have to stick to the Gene Cooper format. Mm-hmm. He featured me in brush solos and stuff. And uh, the only thing he ever said to me was, I just need a drummer in my band. I don't want a hero. That is, if the trumpets or the trombones are messing up, I don't want you to play louder, then I have a problem in another section. Right. So I'll tell you what, I've been standing in front of a band for a long time. If we need some new horn players, we will get some new horn players. Now, you play the drum part, I'll play the clarinet part, we'll go on fine. And that's about all he said to me in three and a half years. Hmm. Not much, you know. Huh. But it was the greatest job description I ever got. Yeah. So why why do you think it was that people didn't enjoy playing with him? He was such a stickler for the time. He was the yep. greatest at, at counting off tempos. And when we were playing a fast tempo, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, he's tapping his right foot, standing up playing. Da, 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 da. He could have been playing the bass room part, you know. <laughs> but uh, he had such great time that uh, it was electric. When I first joined the band, we were rehearsing, and just the four of us in the room, and we're playing this fast tempo, really bright. And Benny is wailing like there's 10,000 people out there. I, I couldn't believe it. So I jumped up from the drum seat with Tombs on and said, Benny, that was great. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> he was, I, but he didn't mind it. You know? He said, who's right. this little kid telling him he sounds great? Because I looked like I was about 17. Right. At the time. I weighed 119 pounds. <laughs> That's skinny. And how old were you? 21. 21. But I looked like I was 17. You know? Yeah. 
I think I've always had that that same thing. I've, I've always looked young. So people, you know, people are like, how old are you, 18? I'm like, oh, I'm 25. <laughs> right. Well, it, sometimes it works against you. People don't think you're that experienced. You know? Right. But overall, it worked out for me. But I got along great with Benny. So you had to be able to play brushes. That was the number one rule. That's why my audition was with brushes. I later found out. If you can't pass the brush audition, you never got to play with a band. Yeah. So that's first. Then you got to play with the band. You may able to read, and you have to be able to play the flag words like sing, 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 and the up tempos because he plays some pretty, pretty fast tempos at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there were a lot of uh, requirements to the gig. Mm-hmm. But I, I loved it. I had a great time doing it. It's interesting because now you know the I, I, the times have definitely changed, and I don't see as much. I don't see as much. Uh, need not not that i don't see the need for it but i don't see a a lot of requests for you know people who can read really well and people who have really in-depth brush knowledge and things and that you know that makes me a little sad to think about well you have to exist in your own time right whatever's going on at the time whatever the music is you have to relate to it in order to get the good gigs you know Mm -hmm. so it's like when steve gadd came on the scene Part of it was his great creativity, but he was playing the music that was there in front of him that was happening at the time. Right. So uh, he was the perfect guy. That he, he changed the way a lot of people play, you know. Mm-hmm. It was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. But there are a lot of great players. A lot of them didn't get a lot of credit. Like Sonny Igo was one of the great big band drummers mm-hmm. of all time, and he just never got any publicity. He wasn't a publicity guy. He was very modest, you know. Is he related to Tommy Igo? He's his father. Is that his father? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought Tommy's it was. Father. Yeah. And he, he got me in my first studio gig, uh, subbing for him on the Merv Griffith show. And he went to CBS to play a show with Jackie Gleason. He said, you want to sub for me, Merv Griffith? I said, sure. You know? So we had a trio. And then Merv went to a 12-piece band on an afternoon show. And uh, we had a guest band leader every week. So one week we had Count Basie, which was a thrill. And then the next week we had Duke Ellington. And then we had Guy Lombardo and Xavier Cougat and Sammy Kay and Lester Lannon. So you never knew what you were going to get. So Guy Lombardo is the guest. We play one arrangement of his each day out of the five days. So uh, he's not doing too well. This music doesn't translate well to the concert style on television. Right. We're playing the little white bird that cried or some nonsense like that. You know? <laughs> and then we, so the last day he comes in with South Rampart Street Parade, which is an old Dixieland tune. Mm-hmm. So we played it. And you couldn't get this chart off the ground. You set fire to the music. <laughs> it was just horrible. So we played the four-bar drum break and the chord. And much to our surprise, it's greeted by wild applause. And he just can't believe it. He's got a big grin on his face. And he walks off the stand and go to talk to Merv. We're still holding the note. And this is live TV. No chance to redo it. So I looked over at the horn players, and you can see their eyes flicking back and forth like somebody did something. <laughs> so I hit the Christ so very hard. Bang! And you hear... It's sucking in of air sound coming out of the breath. Thank God he hit the symbol. I was going to pass out, you know. That was one of the more entertaining moments of that show. <laughs> And then the time Duke Ellington was on, he had a tricky arrangement of Perdido. That it was in three-bar phrases. 
So it was a tricky introduction and fairly black tempo. And Duke comes back and goes, what are you for? And raises his arm up in the air. And the band came in on time. Really? And, and our conductor was staying over the side, the regular conductor for the show. His mouth was hanging wide open, and he came up afterwards and said, how did you guys ever come in? And he said, I thought there was going to be a train wreck. So how did you do it? And one guy says, well, man, it was Duke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had to come in right. You know, yeah. We didn't have a choice. Yeah, but it was funny. Everybody came in. <laughs> It's amazing the the stories that you have, and you know the 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 people that you've played with, and and you know, the places that you've played, and and the things that you've done. And we're we haven't even scratched the surface of the stuff that you've done. I mean, at this point, when you were doing the Merv Griffith show, how old were you at that point? Oh, late twenties. Late twenties. So, at what point did you start to sort of become you know an, an in demand teacher and and start writing books and things like that? Well, uh, a drummer by the name of Lou Mallon, who's no longer with us, and I used to practice together in New York. So we were practicing this finger technique, and we developed a couple of things on it that nobody else had done. So we got the idea, like, maybe we should write a book. So Lou went on the road with a singer called Demita Joe, and he was out of town, and I went up to see Henry. I told my wife, he's going to turn me down. I just know it. So I talked to Henry about this finger control book, and what we had written up and so forth. And Henry says, great idea. We'll take photographs. We'll do this. We'll do that. And I didn't know what to say because I was so prepared for him to say no. that I was just shocked that he said yes, you know. Hmm. So uh, we get the finger control book going, and it, it did very well uh, for the book of that time, you know. Not hmm. huge numbers, but very well. And uh, that was the beginning of my entry into writing books because Henry was so organized. I learned a lot from him about how to put a book together. Right. And, uh, it was a very interesting experience because uh, just before that, I, I took, I'd taken some lessons from Henry because when I joined Benny Goodman, Sing, Sing, Sing is 15 minutes long with a drum solo in it. So by the time I got to the last chorus to play the solo, my arms were shaking so much I could hardly play it. The solo I didn't have any strength. So, uh, Sonny, I go again, said, we'll go see Henry Ever. I said, that old guy? He said, I think you should take some lessons from Henry. So I go in there, and Henry says, play some paradiddles on the pad. So I play some paradiddles. He said, okay. He said, can you double that? And I said, yeah. And so I play it twice as fast. And he said, that's very good. He said, no, you can't double it again. I said, yeah, I can. He said, no, you can't. I said, I can. He said, let me see. I doubled it again. He almost fell off his chair laughing. He said, that's fast. He said, that's really fast. But you don't have any leverage. You're not getting any volume. So he started teaching me this grip with a very stiff-looking wrist exercises. I said, what's this going to do? He said, it's going to strengthen your wrist and your hand. I said, Henry, I've been playing a long time. I don't know about this. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. You do this for two weeks exactly like I show it to you. And if you don't, show an immediate improvement, I will give you double your money back. And I said, well, that sounds fair enough. Yeah. And uh, I never had an endurance problem after that. I could play longer and louder and faster than most guys, and I was the little guy, you know. Wait, after two and, weeks? Well, after, after two weeks, I didn't have a problem, but it kept improving once I got the idea. And then what I learned was uh, I had an exercise that my teacher in Kansas City had given me, Jack Miller. 
was eighth notes, triplets, and sixteenth notes. And you had to play them all evenly with no accents. Well, I noticed that when I went from the eighths to the triplets, the sound changed on a pad. And when I went from the triplets to the sixteenths, the sound changed again. So I said, I must be doing something, but I don't know what it is. So I realized I was tightening up as I went to the faster note value. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to play all those three note values at a fast speed without any change in the sound, which meant I didn't tighten up. Because the tendency is when you go faster, you tighten up, and the sound gets small, and the pitch goes up. Right. So I learned to do that, and I could uh, play single strokes for 20 minutes, or 10 minutes, or 5 minutes without getting tired. Because I just learned how to move the stick and, and let the stick do the work and not uh, try to force it by using my muscles. So I learned to stay relaxed at any tempo and any volume level. And that helped my playing a lot. And that came about the things I'd put together from the, my teacher, Jack Miller, and from Henry Ammer. So now do you teach, do you, like, I'm really interested in the, in the wrist exercise and the, the hand exercise that you just talked about. So is that in, that's not in finger control, is it? No, it's in a new book with, uh, what's the company, Kendor Publishing. Mm-hmm. It's called the Relaxed Hand Technique. It has all the exercises I learned to teach myself. How to get a sound, how to get a uh, an accent without tightening up, and how to use your ear to tell if you're doing it right technically. Mm-hmm. See, that's, that's what they don't teach you. They teach you rudiments, and you play them over and over again, but they don't teach you how to hear them. Right. See, if you listen, figure on a good pad, you can tell when you tighten up or when you get too loose by the sound. And you learn how to follow the sound and that teaches your muscles what to do. Right. In a sense. So you put the, it's just like the music. You put the sound first and then figure out how you did it. And I have a book on that now and it's doing very well, I must say. Well, I will definitely, I'll make sure that I include all the information in the, uh, in the notes for this interview so that everybody can check it out. And yeah. so is that wrist exercises in there as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm in, I'm just really I'm really interested in, in, in checking that out because I feel like the same thing happens for me when when I start to get faster things start to get quieter. Yeah, so. you tighten up. Well, uh, there's uh, four solos recorded live and in a studio that uh, I did uh, at different times. We put them as a CD in with the book, which is kind of neat. Awesome. The other thing that happened like that while we're on the subject, I used to go to Birdland and sit over in what was called the bullpen. That you can sit on a hard wooden chair, just pay an admission price to get, get a beer and nurse it, and you sit there all evening. What was great about it was you sat off to the side, and you could see the drummer's feet as well as his hands. Mm-hmm. And I go there and watch Philly Joe and Buddy Rich and Louis Belson and all these guys, and I noticed that Buddy and Louis in particular would play certain patterns between the left hand and the bass drum, and you could never figure it out. Those guys played so much that when you left the, the club, you couldn't remember anything. It's like listening to Henny Youngman. Right. He says so many one-nighters, you can't remember one. Right. <laughs> so I developed a, a discipline to go there, and I would watch Buddy Rich's right hand for one whole tune. I wouldn't take my eyes off the right hand, no matter what he played. And then I would watch the left hand for one whole tune, and then the right foot for one whole tune, and then the left foot for one whole tune. And I disciplined myself to do that until I could see what the patterns were. And I was able to take them apart and put them back together again. That's how I'm going to play all that stuff. And that's in a book called uh, Solo Secrets of the Left-Handed Bass Drum. And it has a, a, a DVD in it of the last clinic I did, where I demonstrate all those patterns 
and how they how I use it in the play. Hmm. And I'm really proud of that book because uh, it took 40 years to write it. Jeez. <laughs> it had been in the back of my mind, and I just never got around to it. And then I finally had a chance, and I thought, I'm going to put this in a book and see what it does. I'm, I'm glad that it's out there because at least guys can figure out what these great players played. Now, you know, they're all gone. and The videos are nice, but uh, it's pretty hard to figure out what they're playing sometimes, you know? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, uh, there's multiple times where I'm looking at something over and over and over again on YouTube and I just, you know, I, I can't figure it out. I can't go see the person live play it. Right. So, you know, well, this has them all notated. It's written out. Oh, awesome. And it's really, it's really kind of neat. It uh, changes the way you play, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I'm taking, I'm taking notes here to make sure I have all this stuff written down. I used to tell students, I said, you know, you're thinking, and it's taking you as far as you can go, and you're at a standstill. The student would say, how do you know that? I said, because you came to see me. If your ideas are still working, you wouldn't need me. Right. You need someone like me to give you a fresh look at what you're doing. And I said, if you don't change the way you think, you're going to be the same schmuck with a few new licks. Yep. And that's not going to really help you or me. Mm-hmm. Now, what we have to do is change how you look at the instrument, how you think about playing certain things, and it'll give you another point of view. My point of view is not all inclusive. I don't mean that, but it's at least different. And right. it's a little advanced than what you're doing. So you take some lessons from me, get a different point of view, take some lessons from another guy who's, who's good and well-recommended. And before you know it, you've changed your thinking about the instrument, which is the whole idea, not just teaching a guy rudiments, you know? Right. And, you know, I think that a lot of people think so much about it that they're not thinking anything at some point because they're, you know, I I get so many emails where people just ask me, Hey, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really excited and, and, and I have a a ton of energy and I want to practice. I just, I don't know what to practice. What should I practice? What should I go over? You know? And it's such a, it's such a broad question, but I'd love to hear. The teacher can teach you how to practice. He can't teach you how to play. Right. But the people overlook that. Having someone teach you how to practice is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, uh, how you use your time, you suddenly realize that uh, three years have gone by and you don't know any more than you did three years ago. Mm-hmm. And your time has a way of slipping away from you, you know. I'm going to be 80 in two months. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I would live this long. It's like the old joke says, if I know I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. Right. <laughs> Actually, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm very lucky. But uh, it, it seems that uh, you have to learn as much as you can while you're young. Right. And you kind of have to put your ego in your back pocket. The other thing that happens is students are afraid when they come in that uh, they're going to be rejected. That maybe the teacher won't think they're good enough and don't, will not want to teach them. Some kids have that uh, thing to deal with. And most of the teachers are pretty nice guys. They're not there to put you down or hurt your feelings. But a good teacher can teach you how to practice. Mm-hmm. And that's worth its weight in gold. You know? Now, what is your, what's your take on practice and, and how to practice? If I came in and took a lesson from you and I said, I don't know how to practice. I, I go in there and I'm in there for three hours, but I don't really feel like I'm getting anything done and I don't feel like I'm getting any better. Okay, the first thing we have to do is assess where you're at. What can you do that's good and what are you having trouble with? What are you having fighting? 
then we identify those things, and then we say, like I had a student who could not play doom to doom to doom to doom to doom on the bass drum in a bossa nova or a samba. So I had to figure out how am I going to get this guy to do this. So I had him play eighth notes with his hands, da 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 da, da and then with the bass drum, boom 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 boom, using the hands as a guide. Well, after about six weeks, he go boom to boom to boom to boom to boom. He had it up to tempo. But I had to find a way to again to practice it. So he used his hands to guide his foot. Mm-hmm. And that got his foot even because his foot was very uneven prior to that on those things. So you have to identify the problem, come up with a solution, and then see if it works. And then modify it as, as need be, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what a good teacher can do. Yeah. Because, you know, I a lot of people contact me and I think they just get into the practice room and they sit down behind the drums and then they say, okay, I don't know what the practice. I, I, you know, the best advice I can give them, I just say, try something that you, you know, that you're not good at. Find a, find something that you're, you're lacking. You know, most drummers know what they're not good at and what they are good at. Well, one of the problems is the myth that if you learn how to do it yourself, it'll be better than if someone taught you how to do it. Right. My my answer to that is when the red light goes on in the recording studio, and they're spending thousands of dollars an hour to make a record. Nobody cares how you learned how to play. Right. They don't care if you beat up your mother. They want to know, can you play this part now? And if you can't, tell me so we can get another drummer in here. <laughs> if you mess this up, you'll never work in this town again. Right. So tell me the truth. So all they care about is, did you learn it? Right. Not how you learned it. Mm-hmm. How you learn it doesn't matter. What matters is, did you learn it, and then how did you apply it? I agree. It's up to you to apply whatever you learned to the music so you can have a, a good experience. You know? Mm-hmm. Speaking of how you learned it, uh, many of us, myself included, have learned from going to drum clinics and you are, you know, one of the inventors or, you know, one of the pioneers of, of the drum clinic. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit about how the, the sure. concept of that started? And, and uh, I mean, we, we all know where it's gone, but where it started is, is interesting. Well, what happened was I was a new endorser to Rogers drums and Don Kennedy of Southern Illinois University said, would you come out and do a clinic? And I said, okay. So I went to Henry Adler and said, what's a clinic? And <laughs> he gave me some suggestions which weren't very good. And I get out there and, uh, in Illinois and uh, trying to do a clinic and I'm filming all over the place and finally Don asked a question and some other kids asked a question. Then I felt at ease answering questions. And he said, you know, you did very good once you got into the question and answer session and you played great. So what you have to do is prepare something so you have a presentation to make before the clinic starts so that you have something that you can readily demonstrate that is helpful to students. So I did that. And then Rogers Drums said, you know, uh, every time we want you to do a clinic, you're doing a record date. And when you're not working, we don't need you. Why don't you just come to work for uh, Rogers Drums and do clinics and be an in-house artist in residence, kind of. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's an interesting idea. So my wife said, oh, you must be crazy, you know. <laughs> I said, uh, no, I think I'll do it. So uh, so I did that mean no it. more, like no touring or no more no more playing? Well, that was the question. See, I told him, I'll do this. If I, if I get a chance to play, I'm going to go play. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, how are you going to work that out? Well, I said, very simple. If I get a chance to play, I'm going to go play a gig. And when I get back, I'll do the Rogers thing. 
and uh, I wasn't looking to do any extended traveling, but I wanted some freedom. So uh, they said, well, we don't know if we'll let you do that. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you guys are so stupid. And when I asked for a contract, you wouldn't sign a contract with me. So if you don't like what I'm doing, I'll just put my clothes in the bag and go to New York City where my wife has the two kids in the apartment. Right. So it's up to you. So uh, they said, well, are you going to play gigs at night? I said, I'm right. Well, what time are you going to come into the office if you're playing a gig? I said, noon. <laughs> and they said, oh, that can't happen. So the next morning, I'm in the office at 8.30 before Don Kennedy came in. He came into the office and said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I didn't play it last night. I was at your house, remember? <laughs> so I gave him a little bit of a hard time, but I just wasn't going to be trapped by that corporate mentality, you know, right, where right. they own you, you know? Mm-hmm. So once the clinic started to get a, a plan, we got a, a sales rep by the name of Jack Winkler, who's no longer with us, and he came up with the idea like a, a dealer would buy two or three drum sets. Then I would come in and do a clinic and help them with the product knowledge and work with their drum teacher and stuff like that. And then we would sell drums. But there was no charge for the clinic other than they had to buy equipment. So that was a great deal for the uh, music store because it wasn't money out the window. It was invested in product he could sell. Mm-hmm. Well, it became such a successful program, I started doing two weeks of clinics out of every month, eight months out of the year. And I was on the road a lot. But uh, one of the things the guys would say is, well, when Roy comes here, we sell stuff. The other guys come here and play a drum solo and say, there are any questions, they leave. And uh, so I tried to make sure that uh, every person who attended the clinic would get something out of it. Start with some basics, then have a question-answer session, do some playing, demonstrate some stuff, have an interaction with the audience. And... uh, it developed into quite a thing. I was the main clinician doing it on a full-time basis, the first one to do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it'll ever happen again because it was just the right moment for Rogers Drum, CBS owned it. So I asked a friend of mine, should I take this job or not? I said, Roy, who else is going to pay you to make you famous? Right. I said, well, that's the point. <laughs> so I had intentions of maybe forming a group at some point, but as I got deeper in the business thing, that's another subject, but uh, did you have any more questions on the uh, clinics? No, but I'm interested. Well, I have, was there one, I'm guessing, you know, it was a conscious decision, obviously, but was there some, some hesitation on your, on your part because it meant not playing as much as, as you used to play. And then uh, I, but I would also like to ask a question about the the business side of things too. But if you want to answer that one first. Well, the uh, the playing thing was no problem because I was in great shape. I was very experienced. I was at the peak of my physical powers around 30 years old. And uh, I, I would sit in with groups and when I traveled and often use local musicians on the clinics. So I was doing a lot more playing than most people realize. Oh, okay. And, and that kept me in good shape. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a problem. Uh, in terms of... Uh, keeping my chops up, I already I had figured out how to do this stuff that nobody else had, or at least uh, even the guys who could do it, like Louie and Buddy, people like that, they probably couldn't explain it. In fact, Buddy said in England, he said, if you want to know how to play a five-stroke role, wait till Roy Burns comes back. Now, if you want to ask me about the band, I get ready, you know. Right, right. But uh, they weren't technical guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Were you and Buddy but close? I, 
No, we knew each other. We got along okay. But mm-hmm. uh, well, I wasn't close with him, though. No. Much closer than Louie. Yeah. But that's another, that's another story, yeah. <laughs> so what question did you want to ask about the business? Well, you had mentioned that once you got deeper into the business and then you, you sort of stopped. Um, so were, did you start to develop a passion for for the business side of things um, as well as the play? What, ha- what happened was they were making stupid decisions because I was there 12 years. And uh, what happened was uh, they had the Rogers foot pedal, which is the s- smoothest pedal ever until some recent ones. You could take the beater, hold it back, let it go, and it would go 10 revolutions without stopping. Just, it was that smooth. It was mm-hmm. just a pleasure to play it. In fact, Buddy used to use it whenever Bill Ludwig wasn't in the room. <laughs> He'd take the Ludwig pedal off and put the Rogers pedal on. But it was a great pedal. So I get called to a meeting with research and development. They're going to change the... Uh, uh, from needle bearings to nylon bearings in the pedal. I said, why would you do that? You want to save money. So we're selling a lot of pedals. We're sitting, sitting doing okay. So we'll make more money this way. I said, well, what about the feel of the pedal? He said, Roy, you won't be able to tell the difference. Okay, so he brought the pedal into my office with the uh, new nylon bearings in it. I pulled the beater back, let go of it, and it didn't move. I said, oh, this is beautiful. It won't make one revolution on its own. It's that bad. Can't anybody see that? Right. Well, You'll never know. You'll never know the difference. Right. And it was horrible. And we started to get barrelfuls of pedals back from the field. Guys complaining it didn't work. It didn't feel good. They, they wrecked a great product. Mm. So I realized that if you don't have a musician in a position of power in a company, the products are going to suffer because the manufacturing guys and marketing guys, the research guys will all do what they want to do. And it doesn't take into consideration the drummer. <clears throat> we had one of our foremen come to me five years ago and said, I found an easier way to make this drum head. I said, well, show me. And he showed me. I said, it doesn't sound as good. He said, yeah, but it's a lot easier to make it. So we're going to make it the hard way because that's what the guy's paying for. He's paying for a certain sound. And we're not going to cut corners. We're going to make it the sound the way it's supposed to sound. Right. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm that guy at Aquarian. I have a business partner who runs the manufacturing. And... Uh, He's a genius at a lot of stuff I couldn't do because I'm Mr. Non-Technique, you know. Right. Low-tech, low that's me. <laughs> but uh, I know what the stuff's supposed to do. Sure. So uh, I realized that you got to have a musician to be of power. doesn't have to run everything, but he's got to have some strength. Right. So I went home and told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to start my own business. She said, you must be crazy. <laughs> you think you're going to do what? <laughs> yeah, are you out of your mind? You know, I said, well, I'm going to do it. So that's how we got Aquarian going. So Ron Marquez and myself sat down. He had a powder coating company, which is how we met. And he did all the black stuff on the Rogers pedals and the amplifiers for the Fender. So uh, he he called me up one day and said, I'm not getting any more business out of Fender and Rogers. What's going on? I said, it's so confused here. It's such a mess. I'm going to quit. So don't do that. Come over today when you get done. I've got an idea about starting another business. So when we sat down, we decided to make accessories. He said, what are you going to call it? I said, well, your company's called Aquarian Coatings Corporation. I had a mentor in New York City who was an Aquarius. And I said, let's call it Aquarian. There's no percussion company that I know of that uses the name Aquarian. Mm-hmm. So that's how Aquarian became the name. And uh, it's uh, served us very well. People seem to like it. 
Yeah. So what did you guys start with? What accessories? The first product we made was the cymbal spray. Mm-hmm. And then we went to a couple of different versions and we got it perfected. And it still sells well today. It seems to have a life of its own, you know. Mm-hmm. Some countries like it, some countries don't like it. But uh, we sell them on a daily basis, and that's been 35 years. So, And then uh, we made the graphite drumsticks, which we still make some. And <clears throat> the home run was the uh, drum heads for acquiring. Sure. And we did some different things. I brought in a calf head, gave it to my partner, said, why is this so easy to tune? And the other heads are on the market, the plastic ones are generally a problem. Drummers are always saying, help me with the tuning. And we figured out how the collar was designed and the hoop was designed and stuff like that. And uh, we made a, a, a drum head incorporating as many of the uh, uh, qualities of a calf head as possible. So there's no preformed corner where the collar is. It's rounded. So your bearing edge forms the collar into the head rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a calf head works. You tighten it down, the bearing edge would form the collar into the head. So right. you get a custom fit. And it was held 360 degrees all the way around because it was wrapped. Unlike uh, the other stuff was held every quarter of an inch. So that was really our start, you know. Mm-hmm. And you guys have had multiple advancements and in, and in, and in industry first with your with your drum heads along the years as well. Tremendous! We just finished a, a report called uh, "I Can Send You a Copy of It: Thirty Five Years of Aquarium." Yeah, I, I actually have it. Chris sent it over to me. Oh, and, good. And it's funny. Well, I mean, it's impressive when you read it because it is. Every, you know, every few years it says Aquarian did this and then it says an industry first. <laughs> Aquarian did this an industry first, which is amazing. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that you that you guys have done over over the last 35 years that that nobody else has really been doing. Well, we still have the best coating on the market. Agreed. It, it doesn't chip <laughs> off. It lasts longer. <clears throat> and then uh, the most recent success we've had is with this uh, super pad. Mm-hmm. We've invented a practice pad that is the most comfortable pad to play on. Guys play it, and they just can't believe it. And you put it on a, a tom-tom, and make it in all the sizes, the standard sizes. You put on a tom-tom, you hear the pitch of the drum through the pad. So if you've got three, three pads on three tom-toms, dun-dun-dun, you hear the melody. And on the snare drum, you hear the snares through the pad. And you can even play brushes on it. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, cut the volume by 90%, get a great feel and a great sound, and you can practice at night without uh, getting arrested or having right. people call the police on you. And it's really amazing. I mean, the way that it, it feels and the way it, it's just, it's kind of hard to describe because it's, I mean, it's thick, but it's all, it's, it's, you know, it's flexible. The whole entire thing is flexible. Well, we bring drummers in here to our drum room and say, try these, uh, these pads on this kit just for a few minutes. Right. And they start to play on them and say, what's this? And you can't get them to stop. You say, this feels so good. I'm going to keep playing, you know. So, mm-hmm. we, have to, we have to close the, the factory here, you know. <laughs> but uh, one guy told me that he, the first time he said, I'm going to play for three hours. He couldn't get over how good it felt. They, they just feel great, you know. Mm-hmm. And they feel very much like a drum. Yeah, they do. A little give, but not too much, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think that's one of our main uh, uh, products. That, and one we just came out with is, uh, you know, the, the greatest fear 
is breaking a bass drum head during a concert. Yep. Because that's a, a bear to change and all kinds of parts. And what do you do? It takes forever. With a snare drum, you break the snare drum. He's got one tuned and ready. Just plop it on and you keep on playing pretty pretty smoothly. Well, we've invented a, a patch, uh, that uh, bass drum patch. It's 12 inches in diameter. It has a special material that he's on the back. You peel this off, and right where the beater went through the head, you put this 12-inch extra piece of mylar on the head, you can play the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. And it sounds good. So in other words, it avoids a, a, a disastrous problem about stopping the concert to put a head on the bass drum. Right. It's like now, a gigantic band-aid. No, right. Uh, why no one ever thought of it, I don't know, because it happened to me only once. The beater came loose and popped off the rod, and the rod went into the head and stayed there. And I thought my foot was broken. I thought, God, I've injured myself because nothing came back. Right. My foot just went down clunk, and I thought, my God, I can't feel my foot, you know. <laughs> and I later figured out what had happened, but I had to finish the drum solo with no bass drum. So you can't do too much with a snare drum and a couple of cymbals. It's, it's hard. <laughs> the band leader looked at me and said, what was that? I said, I broke the bass drum head, you know. Yeah, I've only but, had yeah, that happen. What's that? Go ahead. I was going to say, it's only happened to me once as well. And it turns out that I had a, a beater and it was turned a little to the side and it, the plastic from the beater was sharp. And it, I guess it, it turned during the song and I didn't notice it. And it, and it, it basically just cut the head and then it just finally went right through it. So I had to turn the drum around and, and play it backwards for the rest of the night. Well, that's the thought, but even that's the habit. Oh, it was, it was horrendous. And the, and it, the, the bass drum sliding forward because the spurs are, it's, it was a, it was a mess, but I made it through it, but, and it had a mic hole in it too. So, so it wasn't very, uh, it wasn't very fun, but, but it worked. But the, the, uh, the first aid kit that you guys have is, will definitely work a lot better. Yeah, I think it's good. The other thing that I noticed when I went through all of the material here, thinking about this interview is we are a really high tech company. I'm not a high tech guy, but my partner is, and figuring out how to do all these things. And uh, I think a lot of companies, a lot of people don't realize what a high-tech outfit we are, you know. Mm-hmm. And that, as you can tell by that list, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it's quite apparent that we are really high-tech, you know. Yeah, and I always I, I love the fact that you guys are always you know pushing the bar and and doing different things and and keeping it interesting rather than just putting out the same stuff and and saying hey this is a different color buy this one instead you know right well it's just like with the endorsements like yourself we didn't come after you mm-hmm. we don't solicit endorsements we don't try to steal other companies endorsements or anything like that right if they if they play aquarium it's because they want to because they like what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And our my commitment as being one of the owners is our job is to help drummers play music. Right. That's to be the goal, not to trick them into buying a product or have some outrageous advertising campaign that can't be substantiated or is obviously phony. Whereas we uh, would probably tend to soft sell or to understate what we're doing because we want to be taken seriously. Sure. Sure. And, uh, I think that's uh, that's just our personality. Every every company has a personality, mm-hmm. and I think ours is to uh, relate to the drummer, who's who's sincere about his playing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you know, when when 
I signed on with you guys, Chris told me, he said, you know, Roy tells everyone, we're not going to make you famous, but we'll support you as, you know, as long as you're with us, we'll support you as much as we can, which, which I appreciated because I understand both sides of the business. And I know that a lot of people have the wrong, the wrong idea of what an endorsement is. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the younger generation think I get an endorsement. So that means, you know, one, I'm going to be famous and two, I'm going to get a ton of free product. And, and that's just the way that it is. And there's this weird thing about endorsements that everyone is just seeking endorsements just to get the endorsements. Can you talk about that a little bit and your opinions of that? Well, what happened in the business when I was growing up, I first started playing, there was Zildjian Symbols, Ludwig and Slingerland and Gretsch, and not much beyond that. So there were only a few companies. I may have left somebody out, but that was that was the core of it. Well, uh, what would happen was if you were a, a really good player, you couldn't get an endorsement. You had to be really good to be even considered. Mm-hmm. Popularity had nothing to do with it. And if you couldn't play well, you weren't even going to get in the front door. Well, as companies developed, companies like Aquarian, uh, another drumhead company, Evans came along, Symbol, Sabian, Peisty. Before you know it, there's a plethora of manufacturers, and they all need endorsers. So suddenly guys are getting endorsements that 20 years ago nobody would talk to. Right. So you had a lowering of the standard just because of the numbers game. Mm -hmm. And the only problem with that is, uh, like I've had guys call up and say, why can't I be an endorser? Well, look, if you apply for an endorsement and you get turned down, we remember that. Why don't you wait until you have some credits until you've accomplished something, until you achieve something as a drummer, until you achieve something in music, and then we could support you up to some degree based on what you're doing. But we can't run ads on you before you've done anything because it makes you look foolish and makes us look foolish. Sure. So you have to, we can't make you a star. That's it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I and having I, a lot of having a lot of endorsements doesn't mean anything if the conductor can't get you to find one. You know, right? <laughs> I always think of the, it's a sort of the comparison of when they add a new baseball team to the league or a new football team to the league, and I say, well, that's thirty-five people who weren't good enough to be in the league last year who are now in the league. That's so, one way to look at it, and there's some truth in that. You know, so as the that's I think that's how I just I snuck under the, I snuck in uh, in the back door of Aquarian. So <laughs> no, you presented yourself, and at the time it was uh, must have made a lot of sense because otherwise we wouldn't have done it. Right. It's like uh, uh, Danny Seraphin is playing Aquarian now, mm-hmm. and he said he had always liked our heads, and we had touched base a little bit over the years, and uh, he said I I would like to play Aquarian. And but what about the support materials or advertising or whatever? I said, Danny, I'll tell you this much. If we commit to something, you can be assured we will do it. But we can't commit to everything because we're a small company. Right. So we'll tell you up front, no, we can't do this. No, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. We can do this. We can do a certain amount of this. But if we say we'll do it, we will do it. Mm-hmm. Well, some counties will promise you the moon, and once you get in there, they kind of overlook it, you know. Right, right. And so we're not looking to have. We're, we're like the Marines; we want a few good men, you know. Right. 
<laughs> well, I'm I'm proud to be uh, to be involved with with everyone that you have on the roster and to be involved with with Aquarian as a whole. You guys are great and have always treated me well. And I I think that you know the message for everyone out there is just that that the you know the endorsement thing is not is not this uh, this huge thing that's really going to be a, a a gigantic game changer in your career. Um, I think you have to put in the work yourself as the artist, or I know you have to put in your work as the artist to, uh, you know, to get the endorsement and to, to become famous if that's what you want to do or to make your career a success. Uh, it's all, it's all in your hands and the companies are just there to sort of help you along the way. Yeah. That's about as much as we can do. You know, mm-hmm. we can't play the gigs for you. <laughs> right. Right. Although I would love if you came and played some of my gigs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I retired in 1997. Yeah. From, from any kind of uh, active playing. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that I'd had enough. I wasn't going to play any better than I already had. I was getting older. I was in the early 60s. And uh, the body wasn't responding the way it had in previous years. I went to play a, a pattern around the drums and some crossovers in it. And I felt this pain in my back, and I thought, I never felt that before. What's happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had to realize I couldn't ride two horses at once. Right, I can't right. run a company and also be uh, a good drummer and keep my skills up, because there's not enough time in the day, you know? Yeah. So you have to make a commitment, like, like you do to playing the drums. You have to commit to playing them and make that your number one priority. Mm-hmm. Well, I decided I had to choose between that and the aquarium. And because of my age and what I've done so far, I chose Aquarian. And I'm glad I did because it's allowed me to continue being in the music business and somewhat of an influence at this late age, you know. Sure. I don't feel old. Like I tell people, I'm a young person trapped in this old body, you know. <laughs> yep. I, I agree. I'm at work every day, and I can't wait to get here. And I, I still love talking to drummers. In fact... I'm the only owner that answers the phone. If you call up there, you want you got a problem, I'll talk to you. You know, I uh, a friend of mine was asking me about Aquarian, and and he said, uh, you know, I'm trying to get a, a. He's an educator, and he said he was looking to do some stuff with you guys with the educator. I said, just call him. You know, they'll. Somebody will talk to you. So he called me back about an hour later, and he said, well, I I just got off the phone. I talked to Roy Burns for about a half hour. I said, well, that's fantastic. Well, so, when I was at Rogers Drums, we had dealers calling up saying, I've got a problem and no one will call me back. So when I, we started out here, I told my secretary, any drummer calls, you've got a problem, young, old, whatever, make sure you get that call to me. And he said, well, I didn't think you would want those calls. I said, no, those are the calls I want because I want the guy to know that one of the guys at the top is concerned about them, what their problems are, and what we could possibly do to help them. Right. So they don't feel like they're getting the shuffle, you know. Mm-hmm. Or like one guy said, I thought the comedian was very funny. He said, I'd rather be insulted by a person than a machine. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> I remember being on the phone one time for 20 minutes. I couldn't get a person. I could not get a person. I kept being transferred from one uh, slot to another, and then I finally just gave up. Yeah. I never did talk to who I was interested in. I had, I was on, not to get too far off topic, I was on, I was calling uh, Verizon for my phone and I kept saying, you know, they said, who do you want to talk to? And I said, billing, billing, billing. And it kept saying, excuse me, I didn't understand what you said. And then there were some expletives that I yelled. And then all of a sudden it said, 
okay, we'll connect you to billing. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, I guess I'm not the first person that's done this before. Well, I'm known for having a good joke or two. So I'll tell you a drummer joke, which I found particularly entertaining. uh, Ed Shaughnessy, late Ed Shaughnessy told me. These two ladies are walking through Beverly Hills about six in the evening, and a big frog jumps out of the bushes in front of them and says, Quick, pick me up and kiss me on the lips. You break the curse, and I turn into the world's greatest drummer. I can play double bass, symphony, solo, jazz, big band, trio, brushes, mallets. I'm the world's greatest drummer, but you have to kiss me and break the curse. The lady opens her handbag and throws him in there and locks it. So the other lady said, aren't you going to kiss the frog and turn him into the world's greatest drummer? She said, no way. She said, why not? She said, are you kidding? I can make a lot more money with a talking frog than I can with a drummer. <laughs> now, that's strictly a joke for drummers. So just, I like it. I like it. I like it. And I, I'm glad that that came from Ed, from Ed Shaughnessy as well. So. <laughs> well, that was the other thing, too. I had a chance to know all the great drummers at least a little bit, not in depth, but uh, I knew Louis pretty well because he kind of discovered me. He heard me play in a studio in Kansas City, and uh, he played, then he asked me to play again. He said, kid, you're as good as you're going to get it to stay in Kansas. Go to New York or L.A. and study. Mm-hmm. So two years later, I went to New York and went to a clinic he was doing, and he looked at me and he recognized me. And I thought he had that look of terror in his eyes, like, my God, what have I done? <laughs> hope this kid's not going to ask for money. And then uh, two years later, we were doing the clinics for Rogers, for the drummer Ramos. And uh, we were playing fours together, and Louis was always a very generous and gentlemanly person. He would always make, try to make you look good. So we were having breakfast the next day, and he said, I never saw anybody improve that much that fast. Whatever you're doing, as long as it's not illegal, keep it up. And then he said, you know, I know you can play. You know I can play. Why shouldn't we have a good time? I thought, what a great attitude. There you go. And again, he's playing the music and having a good time. I had an ego, you know. Yeah. So Louis was my mentor. I knew him better than all the guys. But he was an extraordinary person. Yeah. Extraordinary players. Well, I didn't know. I I met him. I met him once, but, but, you know, never never got to uh, really talk talk with him or get to know him or anything like that. But I know he was an extraordinary player. I will say that. Well, he told me that he invented the spurs that went into the bass drum shell. See, prior to that, they clipped onto the hoop. And you would tighten it down. They would always loosen up. So he said, why don't you put the spurs into the bass drum shell? And they're called disappearing spurs. <laughs> so Gretsch did this. Now, the story I got was, I don't know if it's true or not, said uh, to Louie, we, we use your idea for the Spurs. I said, well, what did they do for you? Louis, they, they said, thank you. <laughs> so I don't know what the truth is. But anyway, he was the guy that came up with that uh, idea. Right. Hey, they work. It was a good idea. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I, want, I, I always like to get some sort of imparting knowledge that, to leave to, to the listeners. So if you, if you could leave a piece of, of knowledge with all the listeners, what would it be? Well, I think you have to learn to be very honest with yourself. As Henry Adler told me one time, he said, Roy, your friends are going to overrate you. Your enemies are going to underrate you. The truth of the matter is you're somewhere in the middle. Now, don't get carried away and don't uh, start acting like you're a, a super guy or something. Just play as good as you can. Keep your mouth shut and uh, 
go about your business. So Don Lamont was a famous big band and studio drummer. So he said, we're going to have a cup of coffee with Don Lamont today. No matter what I say, he said, you keep your mouth shut. So that's pretty direct. I said, okay. So uh, he asked uh, Don Lamont, well, what do you think of Joe Morello? He said, well, he plays great. He said, well, he's just a lot of technique. Don said, I'd love to have technique like that. So what do you think of Louis Belson, the two bass drummers? He said, well, I wish I could play that. And he went through this whole list of drummers. And Henry was trying to get him to say something bad about somebody. And he wouldn't do it. So when we went out to lunch, he said, now let that be a lesson to you. Don wouldn't say a bad word about anybody. Hmm. And he said, that's the best way. And I, I subscribe to that, you know. I do too. Everybody plays as good as they can. Some of us are more talented than others. Some of us are more fortunate than others. Some, some of us, our health is better than others. You never can tell. So if you're lucky enough to make a living playing the drums at any level, you have my respect. So you should have everybody else's respect as well. That's how I, I look at it. I agree. Well said. Well said, Roy. I, I, I'm there with you 100%. And I want to, I just, I want to thank you for, for taking all the time to chat with me today. I know that the listeners got a ton of knowledge out of it and I've been excited about this interview for a while. So it was a pleasure to talk to you. Also, I want to make note to the listeners that between the years about 1980 and 92, you wrote some, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 articles for Modern Drummer that were called Concepts. 12, 12 years, an article every month. Okay, so twelve years an article every month, which were called the concepts, or they were, it was called concepts. About seventy, about seventy. Jeez. So I want to. Li- I'll link to that on the okay. uh, on the notes page from this podcast because yeah. there's so many great articles in there, and I would say that I've read probably about. I'm going to say I've read about fifty to sixty percent of them. Uh, but I want to, I, 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 they're just great articles. So I encourage everybody to check out the show notes for this podcast to, to check out the, right. uh, all those articles that, that Roy wrote, like I said, between 1980 and 92, and they are just yeah. as relevant and timeless as they, as they were then. So, well, a good compliment I got was I was waiting for my bags at the Chicago airport. A well dressed man with a suit and tie on came up to me and said, Are you Roy Burns? I said, Yes. He said, I read your article in Modern Drummer the first thing I receive it every time. Your articles are great. I said, Oh, you play the drums? He said, No, I'm a psychologist. Really? And they gave me a thrill, yeah. I thought I was, I was pretty impressed by that. Huh. They are, they're, you know, and a lot of them don't, a lot of them can be applied to life. They're not just. You know, they're not just drumming articles, which I think is is great. I, they 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 apply to other things than drumming too. So, well, what happened was when rock and roll started, the communication link between the older musician and the younger musician was broken because the music was so different. See, it used to be if you were a young guy on a big band like I was, and they liked you and you were respectful, they would help you. They let her see play this symbol or hit the backbeat here. Or, you watch the sound with the trumpets here, and they would literally teach you how to play with a band. Well, when the rock and roll started, the kids started organizing their own bands, and the older musicians lost contact with the younger ones. So I became that older guy on the bus in the form of the articles about passing on some basic stuff that would help young musicians. That was the concept behind it. Well. It works because it still works. And I, you know, I've learned a lot from those articles and I know that other people can learn from them as well. So like I said, I'm definitely going to link to them so that, so that people can, can read them and, and 
get some more knowledge from you over, as I said, your very successful career. So, so uh, by the way, just a personal thing. Do you think you can send me a CD of this uh, interview? Uh, I can. For my, for my, my wife would love to hear it. Sure. I would like to have a, have a record of it here. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely do that. That's great. Well, it was great fun. It was, it really was enjoyed. my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in January at NAM. I'll, I'll swing by the booth and, and say hello. Okay, Nick, have a good one. Roy, thank you so much again. I appreciate it. Take care. Yep, take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. So there you have it, the amazing Roy Burns. And for links to everything that we talk about in this podcast, you can check it out at drummersresource.com forward slash session one, three, two. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview because like I said, it was a very special interview for me to do. And and Roy just has a special place in my heart for all of the things that he's done in the drum community, excuse me, and for everything that he's done for me personally. So very special for me. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me a favor, leave an honest rating or a review on iTunes. And if it's your first time listening to the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes. I do an episode every Monday and sometimes I do them on Thursdays like like this one. So again, thanks for checking this out. I really do appreciate it. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I love you. I mean it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.